0: The Kern Institute Podcast Network. So I I I was thinking about how sometimes Valentine's Day is called a Hallmark holiday, but I have to say, nobody makes better greeting cards than Hallmark. Like when I when you go through the greeting cards at Target where they don't have Hallmark cards, so many bad options. So I, I think Hallmark, you gotta hand it to them. They do a really great job. And I'm thinking maybe we could get Hallmark as a sponsor for this podcast, if we keep talking about it a little more, what do you think? Maybe. Okay, we'll try it out. I'll contact them. Welcome, everyone. This is Medical Education Matters, your home for timely conversations about the transformation of medical education, coming to you from the Kern Institute at the Medical College of Wisconsin. I'm Michael Brown, and I'm here with Herodotus Ellenus, Jeff Amundsen, and Anita Bublik-Anderson. So Valentine's Day is coming up, and so in honor of Valentine's Day, we wanted to find a connection with education, so we decided let's talk about the love of learning. We want to celebrate the things we've learned, uh, whether it's facts or lessons or tips or, or whatever you want. Um, but first, I thought we should make some medical education candy hearts. Should have some uh, some words on there, you know, the the hearts, those little chunks of sugar with the sayings on them. So you get about three words, I think, probably short words only. Anita, what are you what are you putting on your medical education candy heart?
1: Okay, so on my candy hearts, um, I have a number of. Suggestions. One is be present. And then I thought, what do my kids always say? They say, yes, Queen, because because yes, like that's encouragement. That's like, and then they say slay because that's the new cool hmm. or like awesome. And then get after it because it's like it's time. It's go time. Get after it.
2: Yes, how about you? I chose I see you. Um as I was thinking about what I wanted to say in regards to this, you know, I had an idea initially about how we as educators, at least from my experience, I've I think there's a challenge in in, in the relationship with students in that there's it's can be transactional at times and, and I think it's hard. For both of us to see each other, and and, you know, as humans doing a task together rather than an exchange of service, uh, sort of thing. So that first crossed my mind, and then today uh, in anatomy lab, I was it dawned on me that another aspect of this could be seeing the donor as as the first patient, um, as my first patient, and, and keeping in mind that social contract that the donor essentially and I have agreed to which is this i want you to see me as a person who have experienced something in life and i'm now giving that life to you to to further promote other life and and i think sometimes that uh is i lose sight of that because it's you know becomes a task to do or something uh, more of an object and so i think that phrase, I see you today really struck me as, yeah, remember when you're working with this person, they are your first patient.
0: Well, that is the deepest, most uh, beautiful and resonant candy heart I've ever heard. Herodotus. (laughs) (laughs) Herodotus, how about your hearts?
3: Well, and Jeff, I'll follow up a little bit on that. I I think it's what you said is so important regarding the anatomy piece. When I started my anatomy courses, we didn't have a lot of that, you know, social construct that allowed us to see perhaps more of the person that donated the body for science. And I think it's just such a, a valuable piece that we added in the medical education experience. So bravo to all the educators that thought about including that. And bravo to you that um, works with it on a regular basis. So following up on that, Michael, you said hearts. And I thought, okay. so Jeff said, I see you. I like, I hear you. Because I think one of the pieces that we tend to forget is we don't even hear a lot of the times what our students, our faculty, or staff, our colleagues say. Now, yes, of course, I listen to you, but I think I hear you as one of the pieces that I thought would be important. And along with that, I put curious. And you can put there, I am curious. You can say curious alone. And I think there are just so many meanings in curiosity that uh, one can take out of a a Love, heart, candy. So there you are.
0: Yes, queen.
3: <laughs>
0: well, for mine, I, I didn't go deep. I, I just chose the word meow. And I think meow <laughs> meow can reflect a love of learning. You're excited. Uh, it's an exclamation. We also need our support animals around us. I'm a cat person. That's who I have as my support animals. It's so important to keep us uh, grounded Keep us feeling loved. Keep us feeling warm in the wintertime. A cat on your lap, what a treat. So meow, that's what's on my candy heart.
1: They also land on their feet, you know, when they fall, right? They land on, they keep their balance with their feet. And it's
0: it's very important. So meow, uh, I think it's a good life lesson for everyone. Is that synonymous with a sleigh then? Probably, I think so. So let's move on to our topics here. Uh, The first thing we want to do is we want to look back and we want to think about these grounding lessons that we've learned. You can go back as far as you want. I think some of us, as I look over our outline here, went back quite a way, but it's something you learned early on that still shapes things today, your work and learning today. So I was thinking, okay, what am I going to put down? And I, I had the advantage of being the last person to fill out the outline. So I got to read what everyone else wrote. And Anita, I was inspired by your response, which folks will hear in a bit. And I was thinking back to elementary school and learning how to use the library, which is something that has continued to bring fulfillment to my life today, both my personal life. I love going to the library. I love bringing my kids to the library, spending time there. I like working at the library. Even uh, you know, back to my undergraduate days and graduate school days, the library is such a core place. And what a beautiful place to spend time. Now, in today's day and age, so much is digital. And digital library resources are wonderful as well. They allow me to listen to audiobooks that I check out through the Libby app so I can keep learning that way. Uh, so it all comes back to the love of the library, whether it's a physical space that you love or whether it's a digital option. I want to ask our panelists here, how many of you have a library card to your local public library? I do. I do. I do. I do. Yes, that is great. You'd be surprised. Go ask people if they have a library card. You'd be surprised by the number of people who are like, oh yeah, I should get that. Or yeah, I let mine expire 10 years ago. Uh, the library is so great. Mm-hmm. Anita, do you, do you love the card catalog? I saw you just put that in the chat.
1: I love the card catalog. I have, I mean, that was like even up through college, like we didn't have like computers, like nothing was digital. It was card catalog, you'd go in there, the reference librarian would help you find what you need.
0: Yeah, you know, the little like drawers all the
1: stuff that was in the contained within the library. And you know, it was neat. It was really neat. All
0: right, Anita, how about you? What uh your the what you what you wrote inspired me. So so share so it with I our went, listeners.
1: Yes, I went way back. So like what came to mind at with your prompt was um Montessori school we would once a day we'd take out our little mats and we had nap time like it was mandatory nap time for everybody and I think I did my best learning at Montessori school so I'm gonna stand by the be rested take breaks throughout the day don't forget to um recenter and and come back to slay
2: got to interject and say both those remind me of my uh, first college experience uh, in which the library had beanbags. And I was like taken back by that because I kind of came from that old schema of, well, a library is a very serious place. You're quiet, you focus, and that's what it's there for. But then to see that, it you know, was like, wow, this is a place to take a nap now too. And it and, I, and it proved quite an effective place to take a nap for me as I was learning how to be in college. So this made me think back kind of again to Anita's point. Uh, when I I can explicitly remember right now as we're talking, I could I could draw it all out for us. The schoolyard, the the long sidewalk from the road up to the school door, uh, where my mom would you know drop me off at, and uh, this was in kindergarten and we had half days back then. we too still in, I think we might have had naps. But uh I just it cued me to think of that experience where I wasn't a big fan of going to school. Um, you know, didn't really like it. And oftentimes mom would acquiesce and and let me stay home. And perhaps that was good, perhaps that was bad. I you know, I don't know how that all shaped me. But I just summarized it, maybe summarize this thought is you know, school is a scary place filled with different forces pushing me to choose paths less traveled. And I think even when I meet the new core cohorts of students uh every year that, you know, that i kind of imagine, doing some projecting here that, that has to be the same for them you know medical school is a very challenging place and you don't always know what to expect and so yeah so for me and then the forces uh, there's you know the we often talk about the hidden curriculum or the unlearned or to, to be learned social norms and stuff like that so Things that we perhaps aren't fully aware of, but are, are 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 feeling through our existence in that setting. So, yeah, it was a it was a trial and tribulation initially for me. So, um,
3: yeah, that's that's what that, that made me think of. Such deep thoughts from all of you between naps and libraries and scary places. So, um, so interesting to me because you know in Cyprus where I grew up, libraries were very minimal that we didn't even have. There was a municipal library, but it was nothing that we could go and explore. But my parents liked books, so then we had books at home. And then naps, you had no choice, Anita. You had to sleep. Otherwise, your parents would use corporal punishment if needed. So um, Jeff, Gary, wow, what a, I came 13,000 miles away from Cyprus for the first time in this country, yes. It was pretty scary. I had no idea. It was a culture shock, trying to figure out friends and so on. But, you know, that's our job as educators today. We have students. We have, you know, train learners who come in. And it is a scary place. It's yet another mountain to climb. And I think it's our role, is our job to support them, to help them, to teach them. So when Michael asked that question, uh, shapes your work and learning today, I thought, you know, you learn one thing a day. If you learn one thing a day, that's 365 things a year. And, you know, back them up, store them. I think they will serve you well. And I tell trainees as well as students that if they had come to work and they are going home and they have learned nothing that day, they need to call me. So far in my career, many years, I have not received a phone call. So either they're scared mm-hmm. or it's true that they learned something. So I think that's important.
2: But And that just ties me back to my thought about paths less traveled. And, and I wanna to touch on this because I remember sitting in, I think it was you know, my freshman, High school English class, uh, Mrs. Larkin, uh, she's since passed on. But uh, she had this da- uh, Frost poem. It was a little uh, in a poster, and you know, typical high school student. And with my last name being Ammons, and I sat at the front, so every day I was just you know staring at that, not really paying attention to what Mrs. Larkin was teaching me, but absorbing information, I'm sure. And it just it was that it was that uh, line from. From the poem uh you know, taking that two two paths diverged in the wood and i took the one last traveled and then that's always you know if i learned one thing from mrs larkin's class it was that um and it's been a guiding light in life and i think you know that speaks to the, the larger forces at play too but uh but also you know to your point horad is sometimes we have to really think deeply about what we've learned in in the day and sometimes it doesn't always bring itself to the surface but maybe it does a little bit later, and that's when they have those aha moments. So that's that's a great point you bring up.
0: Or maybe those students were making sure to go to the library to learn something new so that they didn't have to call you at the end of their <laughs> <laughs> Right? Yeah, <take> a nap. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, speaking of, of learning something new, I, we want to shift our focus now to something you've learned recently. And Herodotus, I think you have some news to share with all of us, something we get to learn about you, a big change in your life. And I know this ties into your thinking about something you've learned recently.
3: Yeah. So as of three days ago, I moved to a new city, a new job, a new house. Uh, So that's Minneapolis. So and my family is still in Milwaukee. So it will be a commuting between two cities. So I relearned that change is difficult. I also uh, learned that humans are resilient and it's we can change the world, right? I mean, if we think that one brick at a time is what we need to do, move them, replace them, is what we do all the time. And along with that, I would say, I, we cannot do it alone. And to uh, put out a phrase that usually attributed to Aristotle, um, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So I have a good team, I have a good family, so uh, resilience hopefully will come through.
0: Well, and I'm so grateful that we get to keep working with you. You know, When you shared with me the opportunity that came to you and you, you were thinking about it and I was so, I I felt proud that I was someone you shared that opportunity with and that you were thinking about it. And I just kept thinking, well, does that mean that we're losing you or what does that mean? And and I was so relieved that, that we still get to work together on all the projects that we do, including podcasts, because yes, we can be resilient. I agree, but I would prefer not to have to be resilient in this particular aspect. I prefer to have you still with us. So excellent. Um, I guess I'm up next here on this, something I've learned recently. Okay, so a a lot of my thinking, because I work remotely, and even our podcasting, we've been able to do it because we're remote. We can record on Zoom. Uh, So it changes how I think about work and how I think about colleagues. And as I've been thinking about certain challenges in the workplace and that have arisen because of how we get to know people virtually, I was reminded of something that I used to teach students about. Uh, Back when I was teaching classes on group communication, it's a a model called Bale's Equilibrium Model, and it's sort of a workplace model. I'm going to give you the undergraduate summary if you haven't heard of it. Basically, Bale says all of our work is divided between task-oriented things and relationship-oriented things, and they're continually getting out of balance with each other. So we've got a big deadline. We all have to come together and work to do it. Well, that means we're focused on task. What's going to suffer? Relationships. On the other hand, uh, you know, the holidays are coming up and everybody's looking forward to celebrating. We're having parties and we're doing all these other socializing things. Probably our task work is going to suffer. So we, we need to continually balance things. And I realize it is so much harder today to focus on those relationship pieces because even when we're in a virtual meeting like this, where we do take time to chat and you know hear about people's weekends, it's still not the same thing as being in person with each other. And I was thinking, Bales' equilibrium model does a really nice job of describing what the challenges that many of us working remotely are experiencing. It is the suffering of these of these personal connections, the relationship part of our work. And it's got it's got my wheels turning as I think about okay, what are some ways to start restoring some of those pieces. Um, I think we can figure some things out, and it's nice to have a model that describes that. Does that model? Because I'm guessing none of you have heard of this model before. Does it? Does it resonate with any of you? Do, do you feel connections to to your your work and your daily life when I describe that model? Yeah, I, I could totally see that. I mean, it
2: does. Again, it's something I've experienced this semester is in 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 working with new students is is that it's a kind of a task focused uh, approach um and so yeah that really you know resonates with with me too i I do have to ask so would you does the model then suggest that this type of format this being zoom orientates us to this being more of a task than a relationship kind of thing or what does the model say i'm guessing
0: this model was formulated in like the 60s so, uh, so Jeff, it sounds like a great research opportunity to start bringing this model into the virtual environment and see how applicable it is.
3: Yeah, it's it's such an interesting perspective, Michael, that tasks and relationships, and I, I do think that the virtual environment. Um, as much as it allowed such flexibility and the ability to connect with people all over the world, as long as there is internet access, I think it has also pushed us away from that closeness, that ability to walk down the hallway and say, hey, Anita, um, I think you're, you're getting a cup of coffee. Uh, can I walk with you? I just have a question. We don't have that. Because, you know, yeah, you can get your individual needs met, but not necessarily the team works, you know, met together. So,
1: yeah, the group, as you were saying, Aristotle would say the whole, you're not tending to the whole, you're attending to the piece. Yes.
0: We're two
2: doors so, away from Anita, away from each other, Anita. I feel yeah.
0: like I should run out of my office and give you a great big hug and just
1: <laughs> uh...
0: <laughs> yeah, it is great for those of you doing more teaching that you are having, having opportunities for teaching in person that went away uh at the height of the pandemic.
3: Uh, even for me in the clinical environment that I do see people, I think today's world of diplomacy and um things not to do because they may be construed for whatever, I think also has made some of the connections suffer. And again, it's up to us to develop that bottom piece that I think is so critical in relationships, the trust piece. Because without that, how do you build anything else? How do you say, you know, is that okay to give you a hug? Is that okay to Mm -hmm. touch your shoulder? So, I do think it's an important piece that sometimes we forget or we lose,
0: um, we just miss it altogether. Anita, how about you? What's something you've learned recently?
1: So, this is kind of random and maybe related to medical education because it's like the ABCs, right? I guess airway, breathing, you know, it's one of the first things you do, at <laughs> least. I would participate in when delivering babies, right? The first breath. So I'm reading this book called Breath by James Nestor. And it's really it's really fascinating. And it's it gets into how how we breathe and how frequently and you know how deeply is like essential for just our our working, like how how our body works. And how our over time, how our like evolutionarily—that's a word—how our diet and industrialization of our diet has changed the shape of our mouth and affected how we breathe. So like, it's it's really I just kind of nerded out on it, and uh, the idea of like the flow dynamics of our facial structure um, is related to what we eat and. Uh, how we breathe is just, I just was fascinated by it. So
0: that's very cool. Well, you know, as someone with, with young kids at home, winter is just a terrible time for breathing. Uh, It's people, my, my three-year-old wakes up at night crying. Like what's wrong. I can't breathe. Well, you have to breathe through your mouth, buddy. Like you have to open your mouth. I know your nose is stuffy. And he'll say like, oh yeah, I remember now. (laughs) And then try to go back to bed. Um, And of course having a newborn at home too, there's all kinds of crazy breathing stuff. Uh, I'm using that snot sucker twice a day right now to keep her nose clear.
1: The one that you like suck out of the tube. that right. You like create like siphon gas out of somebody's car. That's right.
0: Yeah. Uh, this one is for babies. It's not one I got at Lowe's uh, for siphoning gasoline. <laughs> but then I think about listening to her breathe, you know, lying in her crib uh, four feet away from me and that, that, crazy newborn breathing patterns. Well, they'll stop breathing for like 20 seconds. You're like, what is going on? And then you'll hear, oh, no, there it goes again. They just have this irregular breath patterns. Um, Sounds like a really cool book, Anita. Send me the details. I want to put it in the notes for this episode in case people want to check it out. Jeff, what's something else new you've learned? Um,
2: Yeah, fledging, fledging, fledging. Yes, fledging is, uh, Anita taught me that word. Talking about this idea of moving things, moving the babies out of the nest. And it got, I forget what the conversation was. This idea of, you know, getting our youth out into the world after we've taught them as much as we potentially can teach them. And in this case, learning how to fly. Um, so, yeah, that was that was a term that Anita shared with me uh, this
0: week. And uh, glad that uh, I was able to gain that knowledge. I, I wish yeah. I wish that I'd made this question just to be about a, a new word you've learned recently, because that would be exciting. I want to hear what other new words people have learned. All right. Yeah. I, you know, I like to use the word fledgling when I talk about like a new program that we have our fledgling podcast network. It sounds so, so sweet and darling, doesn't it? Like a little baby bird.
1: Well, there was on public radio on on Larry Mueller on public radio today. I don't know if y'all our fans, but he's he got me through the the pandemic because he just talks about like gardening, you know, very Wisconsin sort of like farming, agriculture, you know, hunting, you know, super easy stuff to listen to, has nothing to do with COVID or politics. And um, they had somebody on today, and they were talking about um, birds and how some robins like stick around year round because there are some Robin sightings in La Crosse. And apparently there's like certain pockets around the state where Robin, which is typically the first sign of spring, um, that they like stick around all year. They don't go anywhere, they don't migrate.
0: So let's go ahead and look now to the future. This we're in the field of education. I think all of us are excited about learning new things as evidenced by the conversation we just had. For all of you, as you are thinking ahead for things to learn in the future, is there something you're especially excited to learn more about? Jeff, why don't you get us started?
2: Yeah, like I was saying earlier, I uh, was there was a call out for help uh, with uh, a need for observers to uh, observe uh, applicants in this uh, process of deciding, you know, how to resolve, one could say, a moral dilemma. Um, and so this is a study being, as I said, done uh, at the Kern Institute in conjunction with MCW's admissions process to try to develop a way of looking at the whole individual, how they think about these situations, rather than just scores on pieces of paper. So um, so yeah, I'm really excited to get more into that and then see how the whole process kind of works. Um, being someone who's coming from a psychology background uh, that approach to me seems to be a healthier approach from my perspective and how we can uh, consider other aspects of a person rather than just how they're scoring on a a test and what have you. And and, it speaks to a lot of what we're trying to do at current too with character and caring and and competence because competence can come in both formal education settings, and it can come from uh, I guess informal would be a word, but they, again, I, when I look at education and learning opportunities. They're all around us. It's kind of back to Herodice's point. It's a matter of recognizing and thinking about, well, what did I experience today? So this is going to be an interesting experience for me to to be involved in this whole holistic admissions and, and just admissions in general. I mean, I have a sense from an undergraduate perspective of what that might involve, but, but you know, medicine's different, and, um there's, there's reasons why it's different, and so I hope to learn those reasons more in depth.
0: Yeah, holistic admissions are a really interesting idea, and I think it it works to challenge a lot of the assumptions that we have about the core components that we're looking for someone and who can find success. Um, I, I'm a big... Believer in standardized tests, and I really respect the research work that major standardized testing companies have done, including academic work on expanding our knowledge of testing theory and other things. At the same time, they are looking for very specific things and designing instruments to predict very specific outcomes, often GPA based outcomes. And that means there's a whole array of elements that we can look at to try to predict and understand the value of other things that testing companies were never tasked with looking at, which is why they've never looked at it. So I too am curious about holistic admissions and the kinds of things we can learn when we start looking at different elements and understanding their role in predicting someone's future success. Herodotus, what's something you're looking forward to learning more about?
3: I am, first I'm going to say something about the holistic admissions and my, in my role as co-chair for the DIJ, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion and Justice for the Society for Education and Anesthesia. I do think the assumptions that are made in the non-holistic admissions and the challenges that we have with our underserved and the low resource uh, students is what drives us to perhaps consider all the other modalities and how we can support that group of persons to be successful in higher education. So um, we'll we'll see what kind of metrics and measures we can have in order to make those more successful. Asking about looking, you know, I read the question in two different ways, Uh, Michael. um, We talked about looking ahead. What should we always be looking ahead? And in that part, I thought, you know, I don't like accepting answers as face value. I like to ask the why, the who, the what, the when, in order for raising that learning bar. I find it that, you know, diving deep into the response is what makes us better in whatever job we are in, rather than say oh that's how i've always done it and therefore that's the answer so so that's kind of that big piece for me but when you also ask so it was something you're hoping to learn more about i thought okay i am a big environmental person I want that piece to be valued. I want that piece to be incorporated in education. I want it to be incorporated in physicians, in learners, in medical students, and so on. So I want to learn more so I will be able to communicate and educate others
0: about that importance in on our planet. Very nice. Anita, how about you?
1: Yeah, so my answer, um, I don't know, <laughs> it's not as grand as holistic admissions and diversity and inclusion and like the environment and our impact. It's about hill training, because <laughs> I am anticipating a very long epic bike ride next year and um, I just got to get better on hills so like I got I don't like them. And um yeah, I got to get better at getting up them. And in addition, I'm interested in learning more about phase two of our new curriculum, Fusion Curriculum, because um, we know we're learning more about phase one, and I'm I'd like to know more about phase two.
0: But yes, this is the MCW Fusion Curriculum, the new curriculum for our undergraduate medical students that will be beginning next school year. Is that right, Anita?
1: Yep, that's right. It'll be phase here on the Central Wisconsin campus. Our phase one uh which is typically you know you think of like basic basic foundational science um you know the biochemistry micro immunology physiology anatomy that kind of stuff like is going to be transformed into case-based learning and a lot of um small group learning which is really great it'll be 15 months long and then we move into phase two because we have a three-year accelerated curriculum or at least the option of it for our students so um Phase two will be um coming upon us.
2: You know, it's ironic. Is I think the na- the name of phase two is called climb.
1: Climb. So,
0: yeah. Are you talking <gasps> about? Yeah. Are you talking about your
1: hill you know, training?
0: Yeah. There you go. go. Okay. So Anita, I do think you're probably well positioned to learn about phase two through your hill training.
1: Yeah, probably.
0: Okay. Tell us more about this bike ride, and then and then we'll keep it moving here. What's this epic bike ride you're going on?
1: Um, in it's like planning, planning phase. I'm still trying to figure out if it's like a doable thing, but, um, something that's been on my bucket list since I don't even know how, like forever, um, has been riding across the country in the Northern tier. So I found a ride that goes from Portland, Oregon to Portland, Maine. So, um, yeah.
0: And so this is, this is on bicycles, right? Bicycle. So you're not going to be riding a motorcycle or, uh, or something else. Okay. Okay. Right. Do you see any downsides to this endeavor?
1: <laughs> um. Yeah, I do. Life and liberty. <laughs> Semi trucks. Uh, some mountain ranges.
0: Other side. There's, of you know. there's a few in between.
1: Yeah, it's a few.
0: Okay. So, how long does this take? This is like, uh, this is like months. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, no. It's yeah. Like
1: forty-five days.
0: Okay. Okay. Forty-five days of riding, yeah. rain or shine. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Keep us updated. Yeah, you got I th- I it. I think this is going to be a podcast series if you decide to do this uh, <laughs> okay. for sure. Could you do it live? Yeah, could you, yeah That's like, what I was going to suggest. suggest yeah, mostly recorded I live.
1: Reported reporting from the road. How about yeah, now
2: that? we. Yeah, now we go to Anita in the mountains somewhere. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> All right, I'm I'm last up for this question. Something I want to learn more about, and it actually touches a lot on our podcast network. So. We, I talked a little bit about you know some of the challenges of working remotely and these kind of virtual relationships we have. Um, I think we we do really well within our core teams of sharing the work that we do because we're all meeting, we're talking about things that are going on, and then of course I, I come from a you know a scholarly background, so I understand the scholarly dissemination piece, conference presentations, manuscripts, etc. Got that down, but there's this whole big area in the middle that I really need to do more to figure out. And our podcasts are actually part of this. How do we take our conversations, take the work that we're doing, et cetera, and bring it out to an audience who wants to hear about it, but isn't part of our core team and isn't likely to be reading scholarly manuscripts when they come out three years after we've done a program or something. Um, So really, how, how can we share our most important work with the people who should hear it in a way that's accessible for them and a way they get excited about it? Um, and I, I think there's, there's a lot of answers to that question. There are a lot of opportunities to do things like that and to learn more about it. And it's on me to try to figure out more of those things. Um, so that's something I'm, I'm looking forward to learning more about, including figuring out more about how our podcasting effort helps to achieve some of those goals. So pretty cool. Is everyone feeling, feeling motivated and excited about, about learning? You have a, a renewed love of learning from having this conversation.
1: Yes, Queen.
2: You know, as a learning and memory theorist, it's hard not to be excited about it, right? As we were sitting here kind of thinking about the last few points of of today's podcast, I was reminiscing about uh, being on the farm and, you know, thinking about what I wanted to be, I guess. And um, it was learning just always watching the animals and how they were learning it was an amazing thing the cows learned how to come to the barn at a particular time to get melt and the learning went so far as to become um, a biological response beyond just you know getting to the barn if they got there and I wasn't there at precisely like six o'clock when I had done it the previous day, the, animal, the cows would start to drop their mouth, meaning they will just run out of their, their udders onto the ground. So it just gives you a sense of how deep learning can go. And, again, back to Ronald's point, how often it's really implied. So much of our learning is implicit rather than explicit. And that's what's always amazed me about, about learning and, and in general is just, wow, things that make you go, wow. Did that happen i don't remember learning that but i can do it you know kind of thing so yeah yeah it's always inspiring to talk about learning for me
3: huh. that's interesting jeff you said implicit versus explicit and in my mind also when role modeling as another piece that goes with that how important in our teaching in our level of learning is how we present ourselves to whoever wants to learn. It's how we put ourselves out there, whether we are um, teaching them, whether we are, um, we have a, more than just an educational role, but also a role in the social construct itself, so.
0: Right on. And Herodotus, here you are in a, in a new role, new opportunities for learning. Um, we're never too old to learn. I like that quote. And uh, at the start of this school year, we we live on a corner and a lot of school kids walk by. So I like to to chalk messages on the sidewalk sometimes. And I wrote, uh, be proud to learn. That was my really lame, overly earnest sentiment that I wanted to convey to those, uh, especially elementary schoolers and high schoolers who walk by my house every day. I hope we feel this way. And I hope our listeners feel a little bit extra excited to learn after listening to this conversation and are ready to have a Valentine's Day that is fun, where they can be curious and get after it. And get after uh, it. Yeah. And, and slay and uh, meow as well. That's what <laughs> Valentine's Day is all about, I think. <laughs> and, and hugs. And, and hugs. hugs. Yeah.
3: yeah.
0: Well, on behalf of Herodotus Ellenus, Jeff Amundsen, Anita Bublik Anderson, I'm Michael Brown. Thanks so much for listening, and uh, we look forward to bringing you more content here on this Medical Education Matters feed. Thanks, everyone.